If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When Cleopatra took her own life in 30 BC, it marked the conclusion of Egypt's ruling dynasty, but not the end of her family line. Her daughter, Cleopatra Cellini, was taken to Rome and ultimately installed as the co-ruler of Mauritania in North Africa, where she reigned with great success. Cleopatra Cellini's life is the subject of a new biography by Dr Jane Draycott of the University of Glasgow, who's also recently written a feature about her for BBC History magazine. Rob Attar spoke to Jane to find out how Cleopatra Cellini turned a tragic inheritance into a triumphant reign. Cleopatra Cellini is not a name I don't think that many of our listeners will be familiar with. So I wonder if you could tell us, first of all, what inspired you to write her biography? I think, like many of your listeners originally, I wasn't familiar with her either. And I I stumbled across her just during the course of researching something else. And... Well, because she's the daughter of Cleopatra VII, the last queen of Egypt, and Marcus Antonius, the Roman triumvir, I thought, okay, this is this is interesting. Uh, I, I knew they, they had children, but I didn't really know what had happened to them or, or uh, anything really about them. And as it turned out, quite a lot happened uh, to, to them, to her specifically, and... Uh, there was a lot to find out about her. So, so as you said, um, Cleopatra Cellini is the daughter of the more famous Cleopatra and 
leading Roman Mark, who we probably know best as Mark Antony, perhaps. What do we know about her early life in the years when her two parents were still alive? Well, the interesting thing about this is that despite her being the child of of very famous parents and part of a very famous family in this period, because the uh, relationship between Cleopatra and Mark Antony is very scandalous and we hear a lot about it in Roman sources, we don't really hear a lot about the children. And Cleopatra's motherhood, the fact that she had four children, uh, is not one aspect of her of her life of her character that is is particularly talked up we know we know that she had a child with Julius Caesar and that's part of the the story of their relationship part of the scandal of their relationship but her three children with Mark Antony are, are generally something of an afterthought and the fact that she is a mother and she has four children is uh well if, if you if you would want to present her as as being this sort of sexy wanton temptress I suppose the the idea is that motherhood is not compatible with that. But actually, if you ignore the fact that Cleopatra was a mother, you're leaving out a huge part of her story and and a huge part of her motivations for the actions that she took in the period, well, the the last sort of 16 years of her life, really, when when she had children to think about. So with uh, her four children in Alexandria... In, the, in this period, we don't know very much about their day-to-day life because ancient authors are not interested in childhood, anybody's childhood. We, we know very little about the childhood of any ancient figure unless there's there's some amazing event or something that, that later authors can, can point to and say, ah, look, it was always destined that they were going to be this because this happened when they were children. There was an omen, there was there was some kind of, of prodigy, um, there was some kind of event that illustrated their character. So, yeah, we don't know very much about any ancient figure's childhood and, and we, we certainly don't know uh, very much about women and girls because they are not something that ancient authors are particularly interested in. So we can reconstruct a certain amount of it based on what we know about the Ptolemaic dynasty as a whole and what Alexandria as a city was like. So, for example, she was probably very, very well educated. Cleopatra VII is very educated herself. She speaks many languages. She's very interested in science, uh, pharmacy, toxicology, things like that. And it is part and parcel of being a Hellenistic monarch that you you do have this great education. So we see it in, in all the other Hellenistic kingdoms and the royal families as well. So Cleopatra Cellini was probably very highly educated in all the things that the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans considered to be important. So uh, philosophy, for example, politics, science, medicine. And we know that scholars in those areas were living in Alexandria, were working at the Museum, the Temple of the Muses, and the Great Library, which had the the largest uh, book collection in antiquity. So she probably had access to that and and, uh, got to interact with um, leading intellectual figures. We know that the children's tutor, his name was Nicolaus of Damascus, and he later writes uh, a biography of the Emperor Augustus. He, he, He turns his back on his early association with uh, Antony and Cleopatra and goes very much over to Augustus. But he certainly would have been involved in her childhood education. And in all likelihood, she she would have been 
uh, trained by her mother in the requirements of ruling of, of being a queen because it was expected that she would be a queen alongside her brothers who would be kings. And so I imagine there was a fair bit of of being present in the royal court and seeing her mother doing the business of queenship, receiving embassies, dealing with diplomats. And there are other queens operating at the same time. So south of Egypt, Nubia, you have uh, Queen Amenirenas, who had her own dealings with the Romans. So Cleopatra Cellini, in all likelihood, is seeing how other queens and kings of neighbouring kingdoms are doing their business with Egypt and with Rome as well. Her childhood sort of takes an abrupt turn, of course, when she's aged about 10, I think it was, when both her parents take their own lives in 30 BC. What does this mean for Cleopatra Cellini? Is she at this point in some danger from Rome? I think she would have thought herself to be, yes, because the way that things were at that time, the Roman army has occupied Egypt, has occupied Alexandria. Uh, Her father committed suicide first, and if he hadn't, he probably would have been executed or at least uh, given given the means of, of uh, taking his own life uh, quite actively. He, then her, her mother is imprisoned and uh, she tries to take her own life on, on several occasions, uh, but is stopped by um, Octavian's soldiers because he wants to take her back to Rome and, and exhibit her in his triumph. Her two eldest half-brothers, so that's Caesarian, that is the son of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, and her father's eldest son, Marcus Antonius Antillus, with his wife Fulvia. Well, Caesarian is executed, uh, as far as our sources tell us. They don't give us details as to how, but but he was intercepted uh, trying to flee Egypt, and he was executed and Antillus is brutally murdered on the uh, the steps of a temple in Alexandria, and uh, ro- his corpse is robbed. So, having those things happen in fairly quick succession, her someone who is very close to their family, um, the hereditary priest of the god Ta, who may have been related, may have been a, a cousin um, to the royal family. He dies in suspicious circumstances, just as the Romans are entering Alexandria. And so there, there is this huge upheaval. There is a lot of scary stuff happening. And so for, for 10-year-old children, her and her twin brother, and, and a six-year-old, her, their youngest brother, this must have been very frightening. And they would have been uh, aware that uh, there was a possibility that something horrible might happen to them too. As it turns out, it, it doesn't, or at least you know, the, 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 the most horrible thing, murder, doesn't happen. But they do then get taken away from Egypt, their their kingdom, their culture, everything that they've known up to that point in their lives is, is gone. And they get taken to Rome and they are expected to become part of a completely different family and a completely different culture and way of life. So Octavian, who has defeated Cleopatra Cellini's parents in this civil war, then takes her back to Rome and he becomes the Emperor Augustus. So how does he attempt to use Cleopatra Cellini and her siblings for his own purposes? I think first and foremost, he took custody of them to prevent anybody else from taking custody of them. As long as he has got the surviving 
members of the royal dynasty, the heirs to the throne of Egypt, technically, I suppose, king and queen of Egypt after Cleopatra and Caesarian's death, as far as Cleopatra Selene and her brother Alexander Helios are concerned, as long as he's got control of them, nobody else can really lay claim to Egypt because he he has conquered it and and as he later says, he he adds it to the empire of the Roman people and he's got the royal family under his uh, control. So anybody who is who is who's got designs on the kingdom, which becomes a province and all of its natural resources, they don't really have any legitimate leg to stand on as far as attempting to um, take possession of, of that uh, territory is concerned. It was probably also, uh, there was a degree of self-preservation in it for him, because although the children are only 10 and 6, children grow up. And he he also has control of Antony's surviving Roman son, uh, Iulus, Antony's two daughters, both called Antonia, who were the daughters of Octavian's sister, Octavia, who was married to Antony. So keeping control of all of Antony's children means that he, I suppose, uh, best case scenario, he can indoctrinate them so that they become loyal to him. Um, but, uh, if, if that's perhaps a bit, uh, ambitious, uh, or unrealistic, he, he can at least, um, keep control of them, keep custody of them and, and make sure that they live the kind of lives that he wants them to live. Because we, we have to remember that the reason he's got his position in the first place is because he is the son of Julius Caesar or the adopted son of Julius Caesar. So when Caesar died, Octavian was his great nephew and was adopted to be his son, but he was only in his uh, late teens at the time. So much too young, really, to to do anything that the Romans thought within their political and military system. But he used his new name. He was the new Julius Caesar. He used his uh, the money he inherited, the military um, soldiers and veterans whose loyalty he inherited. And he used that to gradually take control of the Roman Republic and turn it into an empire. So he must have been aware that this is a possibility that what what children whose parents have come to uh, nasty ends tend to do to avenge those parents. And, And this is one of the reasons that he had Caesarian and Antillus killed because they were older and they were in a position to do exactly what he did. So he's he's thinking ahead. He's thinking about uh, protecting himself and his interests. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, um, in 25 BC, Cleopatra Cellini gets married. What can you tell us about her husband? So her husband is a Roman called Gaius Julius Juba, but he wasn't always a Roman. He was an African prince. He was the son of King Juba of Numidia. And this is a a sort of North African region that at the time that Cleopatra Cellini is in Rome, this has become a a Roman province because um, Juba was on the wrong side in the Roman civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. And so when he died, his kingdom was seized and it was turned into a Roman province. Along with his kingdom, his wealth, his possessions, his baby son, Juba. We don't know anything about uh, Juba's family. We don't know who his mother was. We don't know if he had any other siblings. We just know that he is taken to Rome. And because he's only a baby... He's brought up in Rome. He speaks Latin. He speaks Greek. He's educated in the Roman way and becomes something of a polymath and uh, a great scholar in many different areas. And so he is an example of what you can do with um, a royal child who no longer has uh, a royal um, patrimony to to take possession of. So he, he is turned into the perfect Roman. And he's raised in... First, Julius Caesar's household, then after Caesar's death, probably Octavia or Octavian's household. Um, And that means that he is alongside Cleopatra Cellini and her siblings and her half-siblings. Older, but he's there. He's part of that extended family. And he's probably also held up as an example for them to follow and somebody who can perhaps be presented to them as as, as being quite um, aspirational and quite sympathetic. So we can perhaps imagine uh, Juba interacting with Cleopatra Cellini and her brothers and and, uh, showing them what the future could hold for them. And he would have known her father as well. So he's, he's in a position to be potentially telling her things about her father that she doesn't already know. And now these newlyweds are then made the joint rulers of Mauritania. Whereabouts was Mauritania located at this point? The region that becomes Mauritania, it starts off as as two kingdoms. And like Juba of Numidia's kingdom, the the two kings take sides in the Roman civil wars and and they they die and their their kingdoms are are left uh, vacant. So uh, Octavian, later Augustus, he amalgamates them into one large North African region. And rather than turn it into a province at that point, he decides to turn it into a kingdom, a client kingdom. And it just so happens that he has got the perfect people to rule that kingdom. He's got Juba, 
who would have been the king of a North African territory right next door, had that not become a Roman province. And he's also got Cleopatra Cellini, who can be the queen uh, to, to Juba's king. Because, of course, she is also uh, North African royalty and would have been the queen of Egypt had Egypt not been turned into a province. So it's actually a, a very um, convenient situation and uh, a convenient solution to the question of, well, what do I do with Mauritania? But also, what do I do with, with Juba and Cleopatra Cellini? We, we can't have them hanging around Rome forever, potentially becoming uh, a danger. So apparently Octavia, uh, Octavian's sister, she match made between the two of them. Um, that that could just be a romantic story, but um, it's it's a nice story it, it, that she she recognised that they would go well together and work well together, and so the pair of them marry. Cleopatra Cellini's about fifteen. Juba's we we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's he's probably in his uh, early twenties, and they get sent to Mauritania. How unusual was it for a woman to exercise joint rule in this way with her husband at this time? It depends on how you look at it. From the Roman perspective, it's very unusual because women do not have an official, formally recognised place in the Roman political system. Women are to be daughters, then wives, then mothers to politicians and important men. They are to provide support and they are to provide a lot of uh, backroom dealing in, in the form of, of family councils and um, networking and hostessing and things like that. But aside from a few um, priestess positions like the Vestal Virgins, for example, uh, Roman women are, are meant to be in the background and, and unobtrusive. And so our sources would, ma- would like to make out that women don't really have um, a role and that, that to ha- for women to have power is quite unusual. And certainly the kind of criticisms that Cleopatra VII receives for being a queen and for being a, a dynamic and active political operator would have you believe that it's not very common. But if you look at the surrounding kingdoms, there are actually quite a lot of powerful women in those kingdoms ruling alongside their husbands, ruling alongside their sons, but also ruling independently as well. So we don't hear so much about them in the Roman histories that survive because normally we only tend to hear about client kingdoms if something's gone horribly wrong. This is why we hear about Egypt because uh, Cleopatra is getting involved with Caesar and then with Antony and is is, uh, upsetting the status quo. But there are plenty of other smaller kingdoms in the East. Mauritania is the only client kingdom in the West. So we have a lot in the East. And we know that there were queens of those kingdoms. We just don't know a huge amount about what they were doing, presumably because they were doing it well and weren't drawing attention to themselves. Then on that note, how well did Cleopatra Cellini play her role? How good a queen was she for Mauritania? I think she was a very good queen of Mauritania. And this is, again, she's not really mentioned a huge amount in the sources that we have, but neither has Juba come to that because the Roman writers are not interested in the sort of southernmost point of of the Roman Empire. They are interested in Rome primarily and where the members of the imperial family happen to be. So the fact that Juba and Cleopatra Cellini are not mentioned a huge amount in the sources 
implies that they're getting on with the job and that there isn't a cause for concern about their joint rule. So if we can't look at the literature for a blow-by-blow account of what's happening in this period, we have to look at the archaeology and the material culture produced by people in this kingdom at this time. And so we know that Mauritania underwent a significant transformation once Juba and Cleopatra Cellini were installed there. We know that they turned uh, the capital city Isle into Isle Caesarea, and they basically renovated the city and turned it into something akin to uh, a showcase capital. But it's based quite heavily on Alexandria in a lot of the design and the buildings that are there. And you have to ask yourself, well, who had been to Alexandria? Not Juba, as far as we know. And we, we've got no indication that, that he was on campaign with Octavian and had spent any time in the city. It's possible, but, but you know, it's not mentioned. Cleopatra Cellini grew up in Alexandria. She lived there for her the first 10 years of her childhood. And she lived there as a princess of the Ptolemaic dynasty, living in a palace, going to the Temple of the Muses, going to the Great Library, sailing around the harbour, etc. So all the things that get done in uh, the new city of Caesarea that make it look like Alexandria, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fair bet that she's got something to do with that. Even things like um, introducing Egyptian gods, uh, Egyptian worship in, into um, the city and into the kingdom. Again, who, who would it make sense to be responsible for that? it would be her rather than Juba. He's he's not Egyptian. He's not been to Egypt. He, as far as we know, doesn't worship these gods. And then we can look at the coinage. And the coinage is a really good source for this because Cleopatra Cellini is not only included on Juba's coinage as an equal partner to him. He's on one side of the coin, she's on the other. She also issues her own coinage. And her own coinage is very interesting and and very uh, um, thoughtfully designed rather than just, you know, the sort of straightforward, boring portrait that we see on uh, Juba's coinage. She has all sorts of creative Egyptian motifs on her coinage. And and so we can see that she's demonstrating a lot of things about herself here. She's demonstrating her origins. She's demonstrating the prestige that she holds because of her origins. She's demonstrating her own personal power to be able to do this and her continuing loyalty to her her culture, her her family, her lost kingdom. Do we get the sense that Cleopatra Cellini had to strike a balance between this recognition of her Egyptian heritage, but also not wanting to get on the wrong side of Rome, who after all had defeated her mother and had defeated Egypt. I think that's exactly right. The fact that we don't see any Roman intervention in Mauritania demonstrates that that Juba and Cleopatra Cellini are managing to keep the kingdom under control and do it in such a way that Augustus is happy with what they're doing. Realistically, there was no way that Cleopatra Cellini was ever going to be able to uh, return to Egypt in, in any capacity. And the northern coast of Africa is, is extremely, it's, it's an extremely long distance. So she, she couldn't even necessarily travel um, that way uh, to, to physically return to the kingdom. So as long as she wasn't 
fermenting some kind of, of rebellion or, or insurrection, it's it's safe to say that she could play up her Egyptian heritage, especially since it would be a way of increasing her and, by implication, Juba's uh, personal prestige and power in the region to make their hold on the kingdom in the face of incursions from indigenous tribes to the south uh, that much stronger. And Egypt in this period becomes very fashionable. In Rome, there is there is so much interest in Egyptian art and Egyptian architecture. We see pyramids popping up everywhere. We see uh, frescoes painted in houses. We see statues decorating gardens. So Egypt is trendy. Egypt is cool. And uh, Cleopatra Cellini gets to embody that and to bring that sort of cosmopolitan sophistication into Mauritania and Mauritanian society. Now, sadly, Cleopatra Cellini, like her mother, didn't have a very long life. And what do we know about when she died and why? Again, we don't know a huge amount of specific information. We don't know her precise date of death because we don't know the dates of death of many ancient figures. Again, they're recorded if there's a reason to record them. So like Antony, like Cleopatra, they're recorded in the course of a very detailed recording of this civil war. But uh, as far as other Ptolemaic rulers are concerned, that it's mentioned in passing. So we know that Cleopatra Cellini dies relatively young, although we don't know precisely when. What we do know, though, is that her death coincides with a lunar eclipse, which, because uh, Cellini is the goddess of the moon, and throughout her life she has made reference to that or or reference has been made to that first by her parents and and then by herself so the fact that that she is thought to be quite close to the goddess and to then have a lunar eclipse happen at the same time as her death that seemed to be something quite important something quite momentous and so a poem is written by uh, a poet called Cronagoras of Mytilene to commemorate this occasion and because scientists, astronomers know when astronomical events like eclipses happen, there are some specific dates that could fit into this time frame. So we don't know the specific date, but we know that there are several specific dates it could have been. So I think as as far as ancient uh, figures' deaths go, that's actually a good amount of information. And it's, it's certainly very interesting information that this event happened and was seen to be sort of momentous and important potentially of, of what was to come. So the poem's very beautiful. I would recommend people read it and just enjoy it as a, a rather lovely, rather plaintive eulogy for a very significant queen. And speaking of that significance, what do we know of her legacy for Mauritania. Do we know how she was remembered, how much of her work carried on? Well, the fact that Juba and Cleopatra Cellini ruled Mauritania together, and after Cleopatra Cellini's death, Juba rules Mauritania with their son, who is called Ptolemy, that indicates that, well, it was a very large kingdom. It was a very complex kingdom to, to have to run. It required two people. So clearly... Cleopatra Cellini's death leaves a void that Ptolemy has to step up to fill. And his name is Ptolemy. He is named after her family, not Juba's. So even after her death, her heritage, her authority and prestige is is used by Juba and Ptolemy 
to further their own agenda. So there is that. Ptolemy likes to uh, lay claim to uh, various other aspects of Cleopatra Cellini's heritage. So uh, Mark Antony claimed to be descended from Hercules, for example, one of Hercules' sons called Anton. And so he liked to dress as, as Hercules and, and play up the resemblance between him and, and Hercules. And Ptolemy uses Hercules' club as a sort of personal um, emblem. And Jupiter and Ptolemy continue to issue Cleopatra Cellini's coinage. It continues to circulate in the kingdom. So that is another indication of, of them uh, using her, the, the memory of her and, and her authority and prestige to help them uh, maintain their hold on the kingdom. And then coming back round in a way to the point I made at the start of the interview, Cleopatra Cellini is not a very well-known name, despite all that she achieved. Why do you think she's not as familiar as people like, of course, the other Cleopatra and, and other impressive women from this period? Well, most of the impressive women that we know about, we know about because they came face to face with Rome and they were defeated by Rome. So Cleopatra VII, Boudicca uh, is another example, Zenobia as well. And that's quite neat and tidy. You know, we, we have these, these women um, attempting to um, subvert uh, the Roman way of doing things and they they are not successful and the the story that is written about them by the ancient um authors is is quite neat and tidy it's it's uh you know they they know what to do with with women who refuse to to behave themselves and that is um criticize them and uh subject them to a very negative um literary afterlife and as far as women who do exactly what they're supposed to do so we, we might think, for example, of uh, Augustus's wife, Livia. We don't hear a huge amount about her when everything is going well. We hear things later, after Augustus's death, we hear about her supposedly interfering in the reign of her son, Tiberius, who is Augustus's heir. We hear about her supposedly poisoning all of the alternative candidates for the, um, the position of emperor. And again, this is this is what happens when a woman steps outside of, of the sort of narrow um, room allowed her in the Roman system. So, as I said earlier, there are an awful lot of client queens, but we don't hear about them because they're doing what they're meant to be doing and they're doing it uh, in a satisfactory way. And so the reason we don't know about Cleopatra Cellini, well, first and foremost is because of who writes the histories. So for many centuries, it has been predominantly men who write the histories and they are interested in certain things. They are, they are interested in politics. They are interested in military activity. They are interested in imperialism and conquest. And, and that is seen as the marker of a successful ruler. They are much less interested in philanthropy, for example, uh, or at least uh uh, unless it happens as a result of uh, the money that you've made through war. So we we have a sort of a problem where women don't appear in the sources and then the people who are writing using the sources don't include them either. 
And it's only relatively recently in the last few decades that there has been this concerted effort to start thinking about, well, who else is there who was here and who was contributing to this story? And this is where we start to see studies done on women, studies done on minorities of all kinds. And, and you know, women are not a minority. Women are sort of 50%. But they are seen as as being sort of, uh, well, they, they weren't doing anything interesting. Why would we spend time thinking about them? And it's like, well, once you start looking and you start looking at slightly different sources, particularly when you start using archaeology, you realize that there are different questions you can ask. And when you ask different questions, you get different answers. And so people who were writing histories, if they were interested in Mauritania, which again, they, they weren't really, because the kingdom was only in existence for around 60 years. So in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very small amount of time. And if they were interested in Mauritania at all, they would talk about Juba, they would talk about Ptolemy, they would talk about the kings, because the kings are the ones who are doing the ruling, the kings are the ones who are going to war. But while the kings are going to war, who's staying at home and making sure that the day-to-day life in the kingdom is running smoothly? And that's not something the sources talk about, but that's something that we can has to guess as to how, who's doing that and how that's happening. And it's, it's Cleopatra Cellini. That was Dr. Jane Draycott, Cleopatra's daughter, Egyptian princess, Roman prisoner, African queen, is out now published by Apollo. You can read her piece for BBC History magazine at historyextra.com forward slash Cleopatra's hyphen daughter. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.